for anybody listening to this, we should probably give them an explanation as to where we were last week, just in case anybody missed the show. <laughs> for sure. I mean, it's tough to think about anything else other than the stuff that's going on overseas in Ukraine. And last Friday was when it was really, really starting. And I couldn't imagine jumping on the microphone and just chit-chatting about like writing and building websites as if this wasn't an ordeal, <laughs> right? And I think it's important that we got on this week because ultimately there's two choices with this kind of thing. You can totally let it consume you um, or you can like control what you can control, right? Like you can do your best to have impact in the very, very little ways that you can have impact in. And so like, this isn't a political show by any means. We write about business and, and we talk about generating an income for yourself and, and all the creative ways that you can do that. But with that being said, it would be like ignorant and naive to not at least address the fact that it's a very scary time. Um, it's an emotional time for a whole lot of people. You know, there's a whole lot of people suffering right now. And so I felt good that we took the week because because I think it's important to like digest that those things are happening and at least just do your best to read the room, so to speak. So, uh, so we're back. We're doing the best we can to control what we can control. But still, it's tough to think about anything else right now. And I know, I know the people that listen to this are, are feeling the same way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, last week sucked. Kim and I were like behind the scenes. We're going, man, should we record today? And it's like, that just doesn't feel right. And, you know, that's not to minimize any of the other conflicts that do happen around the world, like on an ongoing basis. But, you know, I think this one's a little bit different for me, at least because it's one of the first where I have friends stuck on both sides of this, you know, like for as much as many parts of the world have like come online and integrated themselves into the Western business scene over the last few years, mm-hmm. Ukraine and Russia are huge tech talent pools. And so like, it was very strange. And I'm sure people listening to this are kind of going through this as well to see these places that maybe for the first time in your life, they don't feel like they're far away. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like it's, Oh, that's, you know, you just, you can just turn the news off and it's not happening anymore. And again, that's not to justify some other conflict that doesn't get attention, but this hits different, you know, and it sucks. So yeah, we took, we took last week off, but wanted to get back to it this week. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about last week when we were just kind of debating as to like whether or not to record at all was this is not a, this isn't a political show. I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on this topic either, mostly because this is like more of a business show, but there are elements of this that play into everyone's lives. Like one is the power of storytelling and information, frankly, like there's a very interesting information dynamic at play in this particular conflict. But another one is, and I think this was, you know, even more prescient last week is like, where, what do you do in times of like hardship in order to find good information or find like a sense of reassurance? You know, I think last week was Last week was a time when people looked for reassurance. And I don't know, I just kind of wanted, I was thinking a lot about that. I'm like, well, what do you do when you finally, when you finally um, acknowledge that a situation sucks and you kind of let yourself feel that you say, okay, I'm going to 
I've acknowledged this sucks. Now it's time for me to do something about it, to be useful or to educate myself so that at least I'm not being the opposite of useful. Where do you go from there? I was thinking about that a lot last week. And I'm just curious to kind of hear from you, man. Like, so like when things like this jump off, what do you turn to for that sense of like reassurance? Well, I think you touched on two really important things there. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because I didn't look at like any of the notes that we have for the show just because it felt weird to like plan for something, you know, and what I've been thinking about, which I think everybody's been thinking about and and Trung actually wrote something fascinating today just about what like modern conflict is these days. And it's like a war of narrative, right? And more than ever. So when we talk about storytelling, like I believe this and you can probably find some articles that that would show empirical data to prove the point. But storytelling is in our genetics. And like you have to understand that's why like we're we're kind of pessimistic as a species because the people a hundred thousand years ago they were optimistic. They said like, oh, there's no tiger in that bush, no big deal. Like they all got eaten. And so the pessimism, the pessimistic genes are the ones that like went through like and and were able to evolve in in the genetic bloodline basically. Storytelling is the same way. We learned how to protect each other by telling stories because nine times out of 10, the rustle in the bushes is probably just the wind or like it's, it's, it's nothing, but we create narrative around those things. And so now that like narrative is connected so easily, it's amazing to see how like tribalism and good guys and bad guys and victim slash oppressor narratives flare up so quickly and how quickly they they spread. And I've just been really thinking about that a lot recently. And it's it's given me even more of an appreciation for just how important it is to be able to tell stories and how much of a leverage point you have. And so like, obviously when we see these examples, it's clear that just like anything in life, like you can use it for good, you can use it for evil, you can use it to confuse people, you can use it to persuade people. It's really about your intention. But this experience and just seeing how fast this information comes out and how we're all basically watching this shit happen like minute by minute in real time, it's given me even more appreciation than ever to see acute value of being able to communicate clearly and like, wow, if there's ever a time to say, you know what, I got to go well and go all in on this writing thing. I can't think of another case study that shows how proof positive that is than this. And then just to address your second question, like maybe not where you were going with it, but I've always been lucky that I can turn to fitness. Like when my brain is spinning, I just I hit the rowing machine and I don't have to think about anything else other than like one more stroke, one more stroke. What about you? That's a really interesting point uh, about storytelling in general. I'll answer the other question in a second too, but did you know that uh, John Steinbeck was a propaganda writer back during World War II? I don't know who that is. Oh, so uh, Steinbeck was the guy who wrote uh, like Grace of Wrath. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, he's like, he's a pretty uh, famous American writer for like liter- literary stuff. Yeah. And 
I've actually never read Grapes of Wrath, but he's got another book called Travels with Charlie, which is the story of him hopping in a truck, taking a road trip all around America. And this was during one of the particularly like, actually, interestingly, I hadn't thought about it until now, but it, it was a moment that kind of mirrored this. So we were in an incredibly high uh, tense situation with Russia. It was the middle of the Cold War, middle of the civil rights movement. And, you know, Steinbeck basically realized he, he was a wealthy author, probably in his late 50s or early 60s at the time. He kind of realized he's like, you know, I've been writing about America for years, but it's been years since I've been out into America. He's like, you know, there's kind of this level of separation that you get being a successful author. And so he hitted out a truck with a camper top through his dog in the car and uh, took, I think it was, you know, three or four months, drove across the country, wrote this book. And it's a fantastic book. I listen to it on Audible all the time just because it's really fun to listen to, uh, especially for any like anybody who is in America and and or has that kind of like road trip nostalgia. But anyways, in addition to some of his fiction and nonfiction during World War II, Steinbeck went overseas to be a war correspondent. And there were a lot of correspondents in World War II. Hemingway was one of them. There's a whole bunch. But Steinbeck was special because at the time he was already famous and rich and didn't have to go. Right. So he didn't have to go overseas, but he chose to go to these combat zones. And it was uh, special for another reason, which was that by the time he got there, a lot of journalists kind of felt like the war had been tapped, tapped out. Journalistically speaking, they're like, We're, there's nothing new here. And Steinbeck realized almost immediately as soon as he landed there that what what the people back home really wanted was sort of these zoomed in pictures on the the little things. It wasn't about major troop movements. They wanted to hear like, what is the, um, the barracks look like that the pilots are sleeping in and, and tell me about their dog that runs out to meet the plane and somehow knows when his flight team has landed, like these little pictures, these little vignettes. And so he found stories everywhere. And a lot of journalists actually were really kind of critical of him because he kind of came in hot and just started blowing blowing them all out of the water with new stories. But before he did that, he was contracted by the president to actually write uh, propaganda books. And so maybe, I don't know if, if you've heard of this, but there's a, a famous book a lot of kids read in school called Bombs Away, which is like, a, it's the story of a bomber battalion over in World War II. And I don't know if it's written under his name or under a pen name, but he wrote, he wrote that. He wrote a handful of like stories that were kind of designed to play up a very specific image of the war. And I just thought it was so interesting that like the government was recruiting famous literary writers to do that. I don't think we see that uh, as clearly these days. But to your point about you know the way these things play out online, it's definitely happening. Whether it's happening on purpose or not, there's all these people who are very influential, incredible storytellers, and they then kind of give their take on what's happening. And what you've seen over the last few weeks is that the sum total of those opinions and people's response to them is enough to shift real world events in literally life-changing ways. So it, I, I agree with you. It's, it's one of those times where as somebody who kind of studies storytelling, you're just reminded that this isn't just about like selling more copies of whatever it is you're selling. This thing is important and it, it's kind of, it's one of the things that defines the course of history at certain times. 
it's an important skill to develop. So it's been really unique to watch this play out from that angle. Some cool things that you said, where you said, I wonder if the government still contracts storytellers. I'm sure they do. I'm sure but, they do. Yeah. But I, I think it's the Kardashians. Also, yeah, I think it's also. <laughs> 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 but I think it's a little bit different these days because like you said, it's the combined total of the narrative. And so those quote unquote storytellers are all like independent these days, right? Like it's almost like a, a, a swarm of like little independent proxy journalists. I, I guess Pompliano comes to mind because he's got such a big following and he's like really pro Bitcoin and he's really pro Bitcoin for the purpose of nobody having control. And so regardless of how I feel about his personal opinions, the way that you were describing that is, I think he's like a, a really good case study of that, where a particular narrative that he has influences like a whole other people to change like their narrative. So I, I think this is important to talk about because of the power of it, right? So I've seen this firsthand with the first website that I started, which was Sober Nation. Not to the same scale, but... I guess in a way it was, there's no question that the opioid epidemic in the States, at least for the last 10 years, I don't know this, if this is true, but it, it's gotta be true. It's, it's probably been the most deadly thing that, that we've had. It, it's probably taken more lives and had more of like an economic impact than anything else. And a lot of the problem with it was that it was very, very difficult for people to come forward and admit that like addiction was a thing that they needed help with, that it was a thing that could be treated rather than a thing that like was just what I am, you know? And so I played a large role in it, but at the same time, you know, like 10, 15 years ago with the particular opioid epidemic, there was also a little bit of a momentum in like the, the culture of it. And so I definitely played a role in it, but it was still probably minimal compared to like the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that also like had this narrative and the legislation that was passed in regards to treatment, like a lot of Obamacare actually has to do with mental health treatment and a lot of um, like uh, addiction treatment. Uh, a lot of the legislation that was passed, I believe like it's very difficult to say like this one article did everything or like this one tweet did everything. It was very much like you said, like a culmination of the sum total of narratives, right? But all of us pushed the entire country and the entire like public lexicon of what we believe about these things to make uh, it more accessible, to make treatment more accessible and to be able to like change the narrative for people to say like, yes, I need help. I am suffering from this thing and it doesn't make me a bad person. Right. And so I'm using that comparison to say that I've seen it firsthand. Like I'm not by any means a political journalist, although sometimes I think I should be just because I'm always <laughs> interested in history and world events. I, I, you would be a really, really, really good like world events journalist, by the way, you would be so good at it. And so I, I totally agree that the power of narrative, even little, little tiny narratives in culmination with each other. Like it's actually, it's probably more powerful. Like that little, that swarm of little tiny narratives is much more powerful than, you know, the elite narrative that have like a particular agenda. So I agree with you, man. Mm. By the way, congratulations. I saw you tweeted yesterday, 12 years. Thank That's you. huge, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty silly. Um, 
like, pretty silly. <laughs> Not sure that's well, the word I would have chosen. It's silly that it happens because I just I never thought that I would be one of the old timers we call them. You know, like I remember just coming around and seeing these people that are ten years. They were like, "What? Like, how does that even happen?" And now. I'm, you know, I'm 35, I'm 12 years into it. And I'm one of those quote unquote old timers. And like, I still can't ever remember where I put my keys to my wallet. You know what I mean? So it's like, <laughs> how, how did I end up being like one of these uh, models that like a young kid who's coming in would look up to, to be like, Hey, if you can do it, I can do it. You know? So yeah, it is silly in that regard, but, but yeah, at the same time, I personally think it's very important to uh, highlight those success stories just so like i said other people that see it that are thinking like i can never do this can look at me and be like oh like he's got it he's just like i relate to him and if he can do it then i can do it yeah so thank you i appreciate it very much thank you you made another interesting point too about how storytelling can change perspectives on things over time uh, like the addiction crisis and I've been thinking a lot about that recently too. In I've been thinking about a couple of different aspects of that. One would be how to combat uh, people with bad intentions that use that fact to their advantage. So like right now I'm reading one of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s books about the, uh, the bus boycotts back in the day. And it's fantastic. It's really, really well written. I had never read any of his writing before, but just reading it has been really interesting because I don't think I've seen rhetoric like his, like on that level, even today. And I think it's sort of exposed this like famine of leadership that not just the civil rights movement, not just the po- like political movements in in this country and elsewhere, but all these different movements have been experiencing, for whatever reason. Maybe I'm maybe and maybe I haven't read widely enough to be able to say this with any real authority. But you look at his writing, and what really stands out to me about it is that there was this. First of all, incredibly well educated, which everybody who knows him already knows. But I think a lot of people who maybe like learned about Martin Luther King Jr just in passing, like in grade school or whatever, maybe don't have full appreciation for just how well-educated he was and how rigorously he thought through a lot of the philosophies that made up like the, the groundwork for his, for his movement. But also there's this whole thing of like when they were trying to do the, this bus boycott, the way that the story was told in the media and the way lies were spread in order to undermine the boycott was really interesting to watch because I don't know there's a lot of uh, parallels to any movement that you would see today. So as an example, and I guess anybody like any civil rights scholars, anybody who's listening to this, who knows more about this than me, forgive me and my inaccuracies because I'm going to get some of this wrong. I'm just reading it now and I'm going off memory here, but There was a situation that happened where basically black citizens in this city uh, were boycotting the bus lines over bad treatment, being treated poorly. By the way, I'll say I should give a disclaimer, which is I have a peculiar way of reading books. So I open the book in the middle and start from the middle. And this is with all books right now. And I, (laughs) I do this for a reason, which is most books, especially modern books, 
the beginning of the book is all fluff and yeah. it's very it's hard to like get interested in a book and the second reason is if you can't open it in the middle if you open it in the middle and the author doesn't have you saying like wait a second how did that happen wait a second what led to this if you're not like immediately engaged it's probably not worth reading anyways so i should say also that i'm reading this book from the middle so I, where i came into it there's a bus boycott going on and that and it's working right like the bus company is has lost a huge percentage of its business because most of the riders are black and you know the government's involved now and the bus unions are involved now and like everyone's just trying to end this boycott and the community the black community is basically saying here are our demands, right? We want black drivers on predominantly black routes. We want a guarantee of like good treatment and, and we want people to be able to uh, be seated first come first serve, right? All totally reasonable even back then. There were, and there were other cities that had those rules and they, were, they had basically pulled examples of other cities that are like already doing that, basically saying this is not outside of normal, the, the realm of normal or this is not outside the realm of possibility. So the boycott is working, but it's only working because people are together on something. And this is, I guess I'm, this is a roundabout way of driving at this point, which is as soon as it started to work, you saw these other elements come into play that sought to undermine the unity of the movement. And they did it in some very specific and predictable ways. So one of the things that they did was they started spreading rumors about the leaders of the movement in order to try and discredit them and get them and get the people beneath them to stop acting like in accordance with whatever the movement was. So they would start spreading uh, rumors about how King had just bought like a brand new car for him and his wife while everybody else is walking or catching rides because they're not using the bus. Another thing that they did, I, again, I'm not sure who this was. I think it might've been either the, like, the white citizens group of the city or maybe it was the bus line. There was another group that basically said, well, okay, just so everybody knows, we met with a delegation of black citizens, and now we figured it out. Everything's fixed, and the the, uh, the boycott is off. That meeting never happened. Basically, this group picked a handful of random black citizens and just kind of self anointed them as like leaders of the movement. And you know, there's a whole story behind how King and his sort of co planners had to run around the city all night, making sure everybody knew that the the boycott is still on. This is a long way of describing the fact that when you have a story that's important to you, there, there are always going to be forces that are seeking to undermine it because it's pretty much only by like undermining the unity behind a specific story that you can really kind of break a movement up, right? I mean, Lincoln said this, was it Lincoln? Who said it best? United we stand, divided we fall. That really goes for- Probably Lincoln. Sounds like Lincoln. <laughs> But that goes for any movement. And so it's interesting to see how storytelling is used to galvanize people, but also how it can be used, again, in like predictable ways to undermine it. And the same tactics are still being used today. Like take, take whatever movement you want, whichever side you're on, by the way. I mean, both sides do this. And I think that's kind of the unsettling part of being a, like a professional storyteller, too, is that it's much more difficult to discern what is true when you're very aware of the fact that even good causes have people manipulating truth in their favor. So like you take whatever movement you want, whichever side you're on, you see people on your side will say they will use storytelling to galvanize people and get them to move. And then you'll use, you'll see people on the other side who will attack leadership and try and like spread rumors in order to 
decrease your trust in the leadership or they will spread information that, you know, like gets people to think that the fight is actually over. All these things, they're all still used today. So it's a very interesting landscape to be kind of like deeply embedded into. And I had asked a question earlier about like, where do you go for a sense of solace? I have only one rule on this for myself, and it's this. After I read something, especially in a situation like this, like when, and I've been glued to the news for the last week or so, and my rule is this, when I read something, I ask myself, do you feel more or less fearful after reading whatever it is that you just read? Oh, wow. If you feel less fearful, what you've gotten is probably news or education. If you feel more fearful, it is probably propaganda. And the reason for that is because we fear, we only fear what we don't understand. So any real piece of education should always decrease the level of fear you fear, you feel, even if it's about something that's incredibly dangerous, like war. That is such a cool way to look at it. Hold on. Education reduces fear because we only fear the things we don't understand. And therefore, by being educated, you're decreasing the amount of stuff that you don't understand. Okay. What's interesting about that, and I guess this is kind of a a cool way to to stay on topic, is that there... what's What's the expression, right? Bad news travels so much faster, but good news travels deeper. Let, let me backtrack a little bit as well and just talk about Sober Nation because Sober Nation is the only thing I've been involved in that had that element of like, doesn't this make you mad, right? So for instance, the industrial prison complex with you know kids getting busted with like dime bags and stuff like that, having to do like three years in jail. And it, it can be like infuriating, you know? And so there were times where I would write stuff about that with the sole intention of like pissing people off and getting awareness. And it really, really, really works. But on the contrast, that attention doesn't have the same intention behind it. And so I found it very difficult to actually build something that is sustainable around that. We always called it BuzzFeed. You know, are are we writing BuzzFeed blogs? Because like the only way to actually, I mean, it's weird bringing money back into this, but you know, like that's, that's kind of the whole point. It was difficult for us to make a living off of BuzzFeed content because the only thing that you have for that is leverage on the attention, which doesn't actually convert to anything other than ads, which can be like a really great business. Don't get me wrong. It's just like, if that's the game you're playing, know that like hype lasts for a very short amount of time. And so mm-hmm. you're continuously feeding the beast. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're just... You're never off the hype cycle and it can be exhausting as we all know, right? Like we, <laughs> we get it. But education goes so much deeper. And man, we've talked about this a bunch of times. Like it's more valuable to have an audience of, you know, 5,000 people that truly, truly learn from you and have like a deep connection with you than it is to have. Well, I guess BuzzFeed's a, well, BuzzFeed probably is a good example because even all the attention and quote unquote success that they've had, they've never actually really like been profitable. You know, people have made money from it, don't get me wrong, but in terms of it being like a business that you would bet your future on, I, I don't think that that model 
is as beneficial to to just regular folks like like you and I, where it's it's much more advantageous to be patient and work to educate people than it is to work to either infuriate or propagandize people through a narrative. So I mean, yeah, like it, it's just it's just fascinating. I think it's really cool that we can have this conversation because I've always felt this inside just because of my experience where I saw like the power of like, wow, I'm just some kid with a blog and a Facebook page, you know, like, look at this movement that I'm um, at least providing momentum for, but it's not just me. Like it really, really can be everyone. And we all have a microphone now, like metaphorically and literally. So like, what is the narrative that you're going to participate in? And it's a, it's a big decision. And it's like a decision that we all actually have to face. You can't really hide behind it anymore. So yeah. it's important. Yeah. You're making me think too of how good causes always benefit from having good storytellers on their side. For sure. This is a funny thing in like business. You ever notice how people in business make more like, or maybe do you ever feel guilty about this? People in business make way more in general than people in nonprofits. I don't particularly feel guilty about that, but that's just because I don't actually like believe in the practicality of nonprofits. I, th- I think there's a lot of nuance to that, but what I, one thing that I've totally. noticed over, it's over a, the it's last... It's not a black and white statement, but, but for no, sure. I don't feel guilty about it. <laughs> <laughs> guilty is probably the wrong word. I mean, we could get into this, but there's like a whole bunch of problems with the way that nonprofits are set up and incentivized, uh, that it's basically like a self-defeating system. But the reality is like you have all these good causes that need support, they need action, they need funding. And we've basically set it up or the, or we haven't set this up. The world that we live in is one in which it is way more profitable to go work on something else. I don't have a solution to that. I don't even think necessarily it needs to change, right? Because you can, you can build a business that's incredibly successful and does good. Yeah. But uh, all that is just to say that in those rare occasions when a cause overlaps with like a highly driven storyteller who's incredibly good at using like the strategies that make money in business and devotes them to like supporting a cause magic happens and so this whole thing about developing the ability to tell stories again it's great because not only can it be uh you know like a lucrative living but then is when you do come across these things in your life where you're like hey i really want to make a difference here i think it can be it feels a lot more empowering to know that you know how to move people uh, than it does if you if you're just like, oh, this is infuriating. And how do I how do I do something about this? It, it reminds me of this. Actually, uh, was just looking at this before we hopped on here. There's this guy who uh, apparently he makes like three hundred thousand dollars a year as a direct response copywriter, and he his sister wanted to learn how to like get into the trade. And so he ended up recording a series of eight videos. They're all like, they're like, I've watched a couple of them. They're 20 minutes long, uh, each one. So it's a couple hours total and they're up online for free. And they're just, they're, we'll link to them in the show notes, but the whole point is like, I mean, we've talked about this a dozen times here. Direct response copywriting is kind of the art of understanding what moves people and how to move people. And he makes a bunch of money. Who knows what he does in his spare time? I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he volunteers like every day of the week. But the, the point is, if anything ever comes across his path where he's like, oh, this is what I'm now going to devote my time and energy to changing, 
he's already got that kind of secret ingredient, which is I already know how to move people. And so we've talked about this a bazillion times, but if you study, you know, the old copywriters who had to move people through writing, it's a real superpower. Hey, can I tell you something? I kind of went down a rabbit hole for this because I got really interested. He starts off with like the history of direct response and he makes a case that like it started 400 years ago or 500 years ago. He says when the very first catalog was created and sent out. And I haven't looked into that, but he kind of walks you through it up to the modern day, kind of making the case for what is direct response versus what is other types of advertising. It got me really interested. So his, ba- his, his premise, and I think a lot of people would agree with this, is that direct response is any type of marketing where in order to benefit from the marketing, you have to respond directly to it, right? And mm-hmm. the reason that it's set up that way is so that the impact of the marketing can be measured. And then ipso facto, the big delineation between direct response and other types of advertising is that you can actually measure very specifically the impact. So I started digging around for like the best performing direct response ad campaigns. And have you ever heard of, uh, I think it's just D D and AD, it's the design and advertising foundation or academy. No, never. They put out a, turns out they put out a yearly sort of, what is it? It's like a prize for the best advertising across a whole bunch of spectrums. And one of them is direct. And I started digging into this and I'm going to, let me throw a couple of these at you because these are like really cool. I think this would be kind of a fun way to wrap this up. And I hadn't heard of these. So they put out an annual award. And what was interesting about the award is that they have a bunch of different categories. Some of them are like categories that you'd probably expect, like digital or direct mail. But then apparently direct response, at least in the eyes of some, can also fall into these other categories that you might not have thought of, like events or products that are specifically created in order to basically be marketing for other products. Or yeah, like a book or something. Yeah. So uh, just as a quick example of one of those, this is going back a few years, but one of the winners was this book Mercedes-Benz put out in order to advertise, uh, what is it? The Land Rover? That's a, be- that's a Mercedes-Benz car, right? I don't know. I don't Land Rovers? So. Yeah, I don't know. It was some kind of like adventure type car because they put out this book, this beautiful like leather bound book all about how to build rapport with uncontacted tribes or like different tribes in remote areas of Africa or South America and stuff like that. The whole thing is trying to sell you cars. I love Basically, it. Basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The book was just like, you have this car, you're going to go on the coolest adventures. But it turns out there's a whole bunch of these and they give out the award every year and there's always dozens of winners. Okay. So let me throw a couple of these at you and, and get your take. Here's one that's going to be familiar to a lot of people, at least the style. So this was, a, this was an ad that a bacon company, Danish Crown, which produces a ton of bacon, they were looking for obviously ad try and raise awareness so here's how they did it you know how there's like this huge fight over how long to cook bacon of course i just had the same exact fight this weekend in colorado <laughs> really wait okay yeah. uh what what do you think is the right amount of time to cook bacon like just under being completely black okay i i'm sure a lot of people would agree with you a lot of people would disagree with you I uh, get, I catch flack all the time because I like bacon, basically like medium rare. Like it's, but 
weird. I should caveat that by saying I'll eat pretty much all bacon. Anyways, <laughs> here's what they did. They created a YouTube ad. I think they call them a pre-reel. So it's the ad that comes yeah. right before the video. And all it was was a piece of bacon that gets slapped on a slab, like a, a cooktop. And it starts sizzling. And then it says, uh, click here to skip the ad whenever you think the bacon is done. And so you know how those pre-reels go. Like you can you can skip it after 30 seconds or you can just keep like letting it roll. They made a 13-minute pre-reel of just one piece of bacon cooking on a skillet. No words, no, no, no nothing. And then collected all the data on when people actually hit the skip button wow. in order to figure out like what is the kind of the optimal uh, time to cook bacon. And I think the, their data ended up uh, showing it was like the vast majority of people clicked clicked skip after something like 97 seconds mm. so but there was several thousand people that watched all the way to the end when the bacon was like blackened and charred stasi style and they totaled it up and it was something like nine or maybe even more than that ninety thousand hours of brand engagement that they got off this ad wow. which was ironic because the whole purpose of the ad was to do exactly the opposite of what an ad is supposed to do. So it's like, hey, skip this ad, right? They push people to skip the ad. Sure, sure, wow. When they thought the bacon was done. And it ended up creating all kinds of engagement. So that was one. And then another one that was kind of similar to that was this uh, clothing brand, Diesel. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, of course. Okay, I was going to say, you're cooler than I am when it comes to clothes. People who can't watch the video, like Tim's got this cool like uh, Henley on. I, always I don't even wear know what that shirts, is, man. I'm yeah, just a I'm just shirt guy. <laughs> I'm sitting here in a flannel. So, okay. So, you know, diesel, I hadn't heard of them before. Um, cool. they're cool. Did you ever yeah. hear of their enjoy before returning campaign? No. Okay. So again, they won the award for this last year. So this probably would have been 2020 or maybe, maybe even before that. But the idea was there's a huge problem in online retail. It's called, Oh, what do they call it? Basically, people buy clothes, they wear them out once, then they return them. And, you know, the return rates are like 40% for online retail in some areas. So Diesel came out and said, well, if you can't stop people from returning their stuff, why try? And instead, they created a whole ad campaign specifically based around it. They called it Enjoy Before Returning, where they said, look, you can return anything you want as long as it's got the original tags and the original packaging. Just make sure you go out and enjoy that. Uh, before you return it and like they started hosting all these parties during fashion week the only entry that you had to have to get in was the tag on the clothing Still on it yeah 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 like any brand would do so it could be their clothing or somebody else's but the whole thing was they've created this entire campaign around people still keeping the tags on so first thought was obviously like dude this is gonna be a huge problem because tons of people are gonna return these get this sales went up 24 percent in-store returns went down nine percent Online returns went down 21% with that campaign. So everybody thought, I mean, I thought too, they were just kind of making a big problem for themselves, but uh, it turns out they weren't. I wouldn't have thought that, that they were making a big problem for themselves because Tony Shea, who is the founder of Zappos, he died recently and it's like really heartbreaking because his book had a huge, huge impact on me. It's called Delivering Happiness. And they had still have Zappos is like a really cool company where the whole premise of what they do is to make the 
person on the phone say wow and they quite literally measure the wow factor how many times somebody says wow really so, oh yeah it's great you like you can call zappos and just ask them for pizza you can call them about anything that you want and like they're trained to just sit on the phone with you and and be cool and so they noticed there was this one woman she's a high-powered attorney who worked on the upper east side in manhattan and she would buy a brand new pair of Louis or Louboutins or Gucci's and then return them for a week. And Zappos is a 365 day return policy, no matter what. And they do all types of stuff. Like, you know, I collect Converse's and I collect a whole bunch of sneakers. And so like when they see that you buy a lot, sometimes they just overnight deliver them to you with a note with like a bunch of flowers, you know? No um, way. Yeah, it's a really cool company. But so anyway, this woman, they noticed that she was wearing super expensive heels and then just returning them. We're like, we got to cut this lady off. They're like, no way. And, and Tony Shea said, absolutely not. What you need to do is you need to measure the amount of purchases that we're getting in that square block. And they discovered what happened is this woman was coming in with like brand new Gucci's and brand new Louboutins every week. And people were like, man, how do you get so many shoes? And she said, oh, it's the best thing. Just Come on. get Zappos. Like just get Zappos. You can buy them and then you can just return them. And like, you know, the, the law of averages says that the majority of people like won't actually return them. And so he saw that move as like direct response because they were quite literally, I guess in your definition, they can't measure it exactly. However, they were measuring within the actual block because they knew where like she was working at least. I don't know if they knew the exact address, but they could measure the amount of sales that were increasing around, you know, like the circumference of where this woman was. So Look, you said that we talk about this all the time on the show and we should talk about it all the time and we should talk about it every single episode because there is nothing more powerful than narrative. Like, there's nothing like it saves lives. It can change the world. It can destroy the world. Like the things that people believe is the most powerful force in the universe. And the best way that I know to have an impact on that is with good writing. And the second best way I know is with good speaking. And if you can like master those parts of yourself to be a better communicator, the world, I mean, you just, you have so many more options in life. You have so many more options and you just have so much more potential to, to do good in this world. So I'm glad that we talk about it. I'm glad that we talk about it even under the context of like this terrible, terrible, awful war that's like terrifying um, for all of us, because I mean, what is this war? This war is nothing but narrative. Like they're arguing about borders that don't even technically exist, right? Like what's a border? It's a narrative. It's a story. Like what's a culture? What's a history of people? Like if we go back far enough, we all come from the same exact place. If you go back before that, we all come from the inside of like stars that exploded some like 8 billion years ago, right? So like, it's all just stories that we've come up with that make us feel a certain way so powerfully that we act in ways that are like mutually destructive. And um, on the flip side of that, it can really be used for good as well. Like after I said that, it sounded a little bit like- um, <laughs> Destructive, like good night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? But all of the things I have in my life is a result of trying to master this part of myself. And I know a lot, a lot of people who have built great lives for themselves and their families for, for the, with the same, the same skill. Yeah. Well, I, I gotta be honest, man. I think that's probably a great place to wrap this one. Me too. 
you have a couple lines in there that I think I'm going to put on a t-shirt because they were <laughs> well, pretty damn powerful. <laughs> I'm talking to Matt now. We're going to start editing little clips up and see if we can get some of these video clips on TikTok and see if we can get some of the uh, little YouTube shorts because, because yeah, like with long form podcasts, sometimes conversations just need to get to where like they're supposed to go. You know what I mean? And I think we can also share a lot of the value and the experience we have by finding like these little clips. So yeah, thank you so much to everybody who's listening. We don't have a TikTok yet, (laughs) but if we do, I probably won't know it because I I don't have a TikTok and I don't think I ever will, but we want to get this content out there for you. And also thank you for listening to this non-traditional type podcast. I, I realize that it may not be what you expected when you came here, but I think it's important that we all have these conversations and it's what we wanted to talk about this week. So I hope you liked it. Yeah. Thanks everybody. And uh, take care of each other out there. We will see you next week.